listening to the Retirement Remix Show with financial advisors and hosts Chip Munn, that's me, and John Tate of Signature Wealth Group. Get ready for a bite-sized dose of timely and actionable financial planning and retirement tips alongside remixed retirement stories from real people just like you. Listen in now to be inspired, find direction, and build your own retirement remix. John Tate, what's up, man? Chip Munn, happy Friday to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's hopefully going to cool off before too long, John. It has just been oppressive of late, and so I am looking forward to a little bit more fall weather. How about you? Yeah, get a chance to get outside and experience the outdoors without stifling humidity and things like that, or ride around in your car with the windows down instead of the AC on. But speaking of riding in the car, I was coming into the office this morning and I happened to be listening to the band Cake. I don't know if you're familiar with this 90s alternative band, but one of the songs that came on was Short Skirt and Long Jacket, talking about the type of woman that the front man would like to meet and the kinds of things he was looking for in the beginning, a girl with a mind like a diamond, a girl who uses a machete to cut through the red tape, you know, a strong woman. And I feel like we both have those in our lives at this point. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is definitely a fair assessment. <laughs> and you and I have talked about it before. It's interesting. And we'll dive into long-term care in a minute. But when you blend a family, starting to learn how the different parenting styles can really give you an example of what kind of person you're dealing with. You can look at somebody's kids and how they deal with them and really quickly figure out what kind of, in, in our case, what kind of woman you've got. And so I know that you met Kristen at the cheerleader table, but when for me, there are a lot of options out there. Again, when you're going and it's not your first marriage, there are a lot of options out there. And sometimes it's important on prioritizing. I think the interesting thing about your song comment is my guess is, and I've not heard the song that you're talking about, maybe over time, what he wanted or needed may have changed. But, you know, a lot of it is, like with anything else, knowing what you're looking for and figuring out how best to get what it is that you want and what's important to you. Well, near the end of the song, he comments, you know, the beginning to end, he's coming and all these things he's looking for. And you know, basically a strong woman. And the second to the last line of the song is after they've met and talked and started to get together, she trades in her MG for a Chrysler LeBaron. So that tells you kind of that transition. You know what? The truth is we all go through transitions and <laughs> that's what life is like. I, I think we talked earlier before our call about independence and trying to, in our case, we were talking about raising kids to be independent and everything, you know, from the beginning to the end is a constant state of shifting and transition and reevaluating. And last time, we talked about long-term care in terms of how do you qualify? But John, once we get past that, the other part is, you know, long-term care literally has its own set of transitions. There's a spectrum of the kinds of care. And so I think a big part of what we help people do is understanding what kind of care they need and helping figure out how to transition from one space to the other. Right. And when you think about long-term care, it costs money, which is why we're sitting here talking about it, because 
you're going to pay for it one way or the other. And so all we're trying to do in our job is figure out how to help people pay for it in the best way that we can. And one of those ways is through long-term care insurance. And to get to the point where, you know, last episode, we talked about the activities of daily living and what the triggers were for why you might need to start care. And then we've got all these ways to pay for it, whether you pay for it yourself or you use an insurance company to defray some of those costs. If you're looking at the billions of dollars that the long-term care insurance industry pays out each year, the amount of money they pay out into the system increased by about five or 6% every single year. And so what we're looking at paying for today is also going to transition into a higher amount down the road. And so that's the part that people hire us for. and They bring us into the conversation to try to help them figure out not only how to pay for it today, because they might need it today, but they also need it five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever that might be. And then you also need to be able to transition through that kind of 90-day, what they call the elimination period, where you're going to pay for it out of pocket, whether you have long-term care insurance or not, and how to get through that period of time as well. You've had your own family members that have needed long-term care in one form or another. We'll talk about all the types of services that are available today. If you had had to go through some of the things you went through with COVID being present, how much harder does that make it these days? And we did. So my grandmother passed away and she had been in the Methodist Manor here, long-term care facility, and she worked through some of these different phases that we're going to talk about. But it was awful in terms of as a result of, and this was pre-Delta variant, when you had that rash early on and there were no vaccines, my mom and my aunt couldn't even go see her for an extended period of time. And so the visitation was tough. And one of the interesting things, I saw a stat not long ago from back in, I think it was 2017, that the total cost of long-term care paid was 9 or $10 billion. Now that was back from 17. It increases 5 or 6% a year. The cost of care increases faster than the cost of most other things, except maybe, I don't know, lumber these days. But <laughs> it's one of those things that with COVID, there are a couple of things we don't know. Number one, the experience is very different than it was two or three years ago, where in a lot of facilities as a family member, you could come and go. Now, a lot of the facilities have tons of restrictions in an effort to protect the residents. But the experience is a lot different. And I think that it's going to change, John, how people view. So my dad's mom went to the Methodist Manor and lived there for right at 20 years. And she said at the time, this was 25, 30 years ago at this point when she first went, she said it was like going back to Columbia College. It was a lot of ladies and they were all together and they were about the same age and it was fun. And she was in independent living and she could come and go. They had all kinds of trips. COVID has dramatically changed that as compared to other options. So I think at the time, independent living, it was what it sounded like. I don't think the experience, at least for today, right now with what we're dealing with, I don't think it's quite the same. The other thing is I mentioned the five or 6% increased cost. What we don't know going forward is how COVID is going to affect that and whether or not they're going to be long-term effects. Like with everything else, we're just not sure. And so I think that that's another variable 
you know, for us in terms of planning, that's another thing to take into consideration that the cost could definitely escalate in a different way. But also, John, there are lots of ways to do long-term care. And so I think that going forward for me, an important thing is having options as to, you know, if I were going to buy insurance, I would want it to be flexible as to how I might be able to take advantage of the benefits because what was going back to college 20 years ago for my dad's mom became, you know, my mom and my aunt couldn't go see my mom's mom in the same facility as a result of kind of what we've been through. So I think it makes a big difference, but there are lots of options. There are lots of options. And it's hard to say how COVID is going to change the cost structure of all of these different options. But you would think that what we know now and what we know about COVID is evolving, not necessarily on a daily basis, but it's evolving rather quickly. But the things that we do know is that it's more transmissible through the air. And so getting together in communal spaces, it was something that they designed these centers, whether it be independent living or other things, they designed them to be kind of communal, like you're talking about where people can get together and play games and do things. And they may be having to shift away from that a little bit. We know that if it's an airborne illness, you need to have different HVAC systems in there and make each room be on its own system. So the air handling system is not passing it from room to room to room kind of thing. And so there are going to be changes. New facilities are going to be differently constructed than old facilities, I would be willing to wager. And so whenever you're having to do that, it's going to add cost to the system. So we would like to say we have a good handle on how much this is going to increase, but in reality, we probably don't. And so trying to figure out, come up with a plan of how we're going to pay for this sooner rather than later and how we're going to combat higher inflation in this one particular area is a good exercise to go through. And so we might as well start with the easy stuff, right? I mean, as far as the types of care that's available, nine out of 10 people that come into my office, do they not all start the conversation with we want to have someone come into our home. We want to stay in our home as long as possible. And if we need help, we're going to have somebody come into the home. Is that not what you encounter, Chip? Yeah, roughly 100% of the time. <laughs> so let me say that. 100% of the time, if we're talking about long-term care, that's the conversation. There are a, a group of people that want to go and for no other reason than social want to go and live in a communal neighborhood or a place designed for the 55 plus. So there are some folks that they make the decision early that it's a social thing. But barring that, yeah, everybody that almost wants to, they start with the, you know, I, I want to be at home. I want to be at home. If I need some help, I'll get some help. We talked about it, I think, last time. In a lot of cases, it may start with the kids, but even if you look at the cases of the care that we can track, because what we're talking about is, unless it's just a regular survey, we're talking about what gets paid for to some extent, because they keep up with that stuff. Over half of them start at home. So when we look at what we're expecting, we certainly want to be able to, if we're going to try to do something to mitigate the risk of some of the costs, a big part of that is the fact that half of it starts at home, but just because it starts at home doesn't mean that it ends there. And so it can 
go through lots of kind of iterations, John, as your healthcare progresses, and it can do that both at home and in a facility. When you look at at home, you also have forms of respite care where somebody just kind of comes in and gives a spouse or a family member a breather. And I think that, you know, the biggest struggle that I see with that, John, with respite care in particular, isn't necessarily always the money. It's the family member feeling like it's okay for them to get a little bit of help and the patient being comfortable with the fact that they need a non-family member. You know, so respite care is a big part of that home health, but I think that there are a lot that kind of goes into that as far as some of the psychological aspect to it. There is a psychological aspect. And you and I have talked before about how we each have, and I'm sure plenty of families do this, we each have systems and processes in place in the home to help make our children more independent. And so we spend all this time making them independent and doing things for themselves. And then we expect people who have been independent and done things on their own their whole life to then turn around and realize that it's okay to ask somebody else for help. You know, that's one of the biggest transition struggles that I see people make is realizing that you could continue to do it on your own. Sure, you could, but it's probably better for you at some point, stress-wise, anxiety-wise, it's probably better for your spouse or loved one that requires the care to have somebody come in who can provide care and give you a break physically, emotionally, and help out your spouse in the way that they need. And it's a big transition to make, and it's a struggle, but it's important to be able to do that for your long-term health and emotional well-being. And so if you need somebody to talk through on that, you know, we help people with that all the time. And the respite care part is also in the same ballpark as the adult daycare which is kind of a community-based center that it's a place to go during the day. It's not round-the-clock care, but it is something that provides some type of care away from the home and away from a loved one who might usually provide care. So those two kind of go hand-in-hand, and they're both a similar intermediate step between the care that you would have provided to you in your own home and the care that you might need or progress to in the assisted living facility, which you talked about earlier, right, Chip? Yeah, and if you think about it, if we're talking about being independent, we raise our kids that way, we become independent, and having seen it with my dad, with my grandparents, that transition is incredibly difficult, particularly if you have left that conversation, some of those decisions, to chance. And so I think that a better way to do it, and I hadn't necessarily looked at it this way until you were talking, a better way to do it is to really, while you're in good health, and it's a weird thing to want to talk about, but we all want to have agency over our own lives. And so to have a plan for how your life is going to go is a blessing. And I've seen plenty of people, like I said, who have decided. So if we transition, the idea of getting care is one big transition. That's a big one. And then moving into a facility is a big one. So to go from going to need some home health care, respite care, how many hours, once you make the decision to get some help, those are smaller transitions. When you have to call and cancel the newspaper 
and change over the cable and you're physically going to move somewhere, that's another big transition. And what I have seen is that the people who make that decision, that that's a part of their journey, is at some point, this is something that I'm going to do, they fare better because they planned it. It's on their terms. My granddad, John, I may have told you, on the other hand, my papa, we were moving him in the week before Christmas. He had agreed to go in with my grandmother. It was the week before Christmas. We had helped, our office had helped with changing over the paper and all that stuff to make the transition as easy as possible. And he called me the morning of the move at 530 in the morning and said, son, I know you're going to be mad at me, but I can't go. (laughs) I can't go. And it's like, Papa, grandmama has dementia. And the concept was we'll go together. If anything ever happened to him, at least she'd be comfortable. But that's a big jump. He said, I've lived here for 62 years. I don't know how to live anywhere else. I just can't do it. I'm sorry if you're mad at me. This is a really weird conversation to have with somebody you've looked up to your whole life. (laughs) I encourage people. I think it's worth thinking through not just the financial part, but the life journey part of how do I go from one place to another, or how am I going to handle the at-home part? But that moving part, John's a big deal. And one of the biggest things I think, as I advise people now when they're considering this, is to evaluate the facilities. Number one, most people, if we're talking about folks who are going to have the ability, so Medicaid's not paying for the facility. If we're talking about a situation like that, most of them are going to look at the environment for sure. But the longer term part of that is to look at how you might be able to progress in that facility and what services they provide so that you can go from one end of assisted living where, again, it's a lot more like going to college. You have a meal plan, you have kind of an RA, somebody who comes by and checks on things and maybe delivers some services to your individual place all the way through to some of the other options. And as you need more care, I am of the opinion that it's wise to evaluate places to say, all right, if this happened, can I stay here? How is this going to go? So I like the idea, John, of having a place that has some of the other types of care available, whether that's skilled care, that's in a lot of ways, just an advanced form. And we went through that with my dad. We went through, and some places, by the way, won't let you come in in skilled care. You have to come in as an assisted living patient, you have to be able to, I've heard it say, walk yourself in. If you can't walk in, you can't come. But if you come in as an assisted living patient, then they'll see you all the way through. What are some of your, John, thoughts or experiences kind of with some of the other couple of levels of care above and beyond assisted living? I like your thoughts about looking at the environment, looking at the places that provide more than one level because you know there are going to be different transitions even once you decide you need help and some kind of assistance each one of those as you need more and more assistance it's going to feel like a transition and so the less stressful and less anxious you can be about each one of those changes the easier it will be and it's very important the more you plan the more i find people plan head for things like this 
the more they look at it as this is what I'm getting. This is what is being added to my life. And if it's something that people are having to make as a decision on the fly, meaning they didn't plan for it and it's just something that happened and now what? It's very difficult to convince them that the changes that they're making are not somehow subtracting from what they have. And who wants to look at making a choice or making a transition if they think things are being taken away? I mean, it's so much more difficult psychologically if we can somehow look at it as, yes, I'm making a change, but these are the things that are being added. It should be easier mentally for us to go through that change for both us and for our loved ones. So yes, we have several different families that are in different stages of either independent living or having people come into their homes or in that first stage of assisted living. And even some folks that are in what I would call the skilled care side in Alzheimer's units or units specifically tailored to memory loss patients there and their spouses in most cases are going through all these different levels as well. And most of them we've planned ahead of time. We all have the funding to do it. And if you have the funding to do it, it also means you have the choice of where you go to receive what care. And always the more choices, the more options we have, the better the transition, because again, we just don't feel like things are being taken away. But the average lifetime cost of these kinds of services that are being provided to our clients, we're looking at somewhere between $250,000 dollars and $300,000 a year over that lifetime. And the national average is about $180 a day. And so it's not usually something that you can just do and not plan for because the cost is high. And like we said before, it's increasing at five to 6% per year or more, depending on how things might change for COVID. So it's one to transition into receiving the care. And then the second part of it is paying for it. Yeah. And we'll talk next time about some of the different ways that we can pay for it. But here's one of the things, there are a lot of things we don't know. One of the things that I feel comfortable that 99 out of a hundred people can agree on is it's going to be more expensive. It's not getting cheaper. And so it is something that we have to plan for. It is complicated. And I was thinking, John, as you were talking about the planning and subtracting versus adding, and I thought about it a little bit like retirement. Nobody's retiring to live their worst life. You're leaving a situation to what now has become a better situation, something that would be preferable. and by planning for that, you can get an idea as to what it is. I think in this case, if we can get to a place with advanced planning where we're framing it as the things that I get from a transition are things that I give away that I didn't want anyway, which is work on my kids. <laughs> Listen, nobody in my family wants me to be their nurse. I promise you, <laughs> they would tell you that. They love for me to handle the finances, but they don't want me to be their nurse. And so if I was looking at it from maybe my mom's perspective, it's kind of like, I want to remove the possibility that Chip would be my nurse because, you know, Trish would take care of me. I'm not sure Chip would be great at that, but it is looking at what you're going to get. And there are, you mentioned Alzheimer's care. My grandmother went through the memory unit and instead of losing something, you're getting 
a place designed specifically for you in a time when it might be challenging when you don't have all of the same kind of faculties. And so there are a lot of things that go into it. Next time we'll talk more, John, about paying for it. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. But I think that today our big thing was really just pointing out that there are options and that there's a spectrum. Any closing thoughts? Well, like you said, there's a spectrum. There's no one solution that's right for everybody. And so that's what people come to us for is that specialized solution that we create and plan with you for you. So if you have questions about it, find one of us in your area and come talk to us. We're happy to help. Yeah. Whether it's dealing with the psychological part or how you're going to pay for it, our advisors are definitely here to help. John, enjoyed it. I will see you again next week. See you again next week. There we have it. Another great episode. If you'd like to continue the conversation, here are four ways that we can help. First, complete the Retirement Success Scorecard to discover whether or not you're on track to a successful retirement on your terms. You can find this at signaturewealth.com scorecard. Second, get a complimentary copy of my book, The Retirement Remix. Whether you're interested in real-life retirement stories and inspiration from others like you, or you want to learn more about Medicare and Social Security, it's all in there. Go to theretirementremix.com to grab your copy. Third, listen in on bi-weekly office hours with our team. We host live virtual office hours to share new investment and planning information and answer your money, markets, and retirement questions. Find the details to join us at signaturewealth.com slash office hours. And fourth, schedule a complimentary strategy call with one of our advisors to make sure you're on track toward your ideal retirement. Go to signaturewealth.com and select the Signature Wealth office closest to you. We'll be back here next week for more on the Retirement Remix. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode.